Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Overready. This is Stephen Robles. On this episode, we have Jacob Brunton and Cody Livolt from the New Christian Intellectuals, and they'll be commenting on the statements made by Dr. Timothy Keller. Before we jump to the interview, don't forget to check out impact360.org for their online courses on truth, worldview, and defending the resurrection. Use the promo code FREEMIND to get $25 off. And don't forget about their gap year program for rising seniors. You can get the application fee waived with the promo code FREEMIND. And now here's our interview with Jacob Brunton and Cody Libbons. Thank you for joining us on the FREEMIND podcast. I got a... wife with us this time last time we did this conversation the only comment i had the first two days was where's nerva and i was like are you serious like all this good information these guys are spitting out but so anyways as if merely for nothing other than not to distract people by her lack of presence she is back and with me here um no but this has been great man we've we've actually re-listened to our last time with you guys a couple times Mm because i thought it was so informative so if you're coming into this conversation and you haven't heard our first interview with these guys go back and listen to it just a few episodes um after this and and you'll really really appreciate it and, and learn a lot from it so thank you guys uh jacob and cody from the new christian intellectuals for coming back and being with us great to be here so we're going to talk today. Uh, we, we just spoke with Samuel Say about an article from Tim Keller, and we set this up to talk through, you know, basically what are Tim Keller's views. It's catching a lot of people off guard. He seems to be giving cover to voting Democratic. Uh, certain people think, is he a Marxist? Maybe he's not, but he seems to be upholding some principles that are parallel to Marxism. What's going on here? Uh, what's happening? And um, I wanted to bring you guys into this discussion. Um, just as we got on here, I found out that he just released his 9,000 word, I guess, document on a follow-up article. And I know you guys are maybe about halfway through reading it. So we, maybe we'll get on that as well. But um, just let's, let's begin today. We're just going we're, we're gonna to go kind of off the hit um, here and see what happens. But one of the things I wanted to talk through is what are Tim Keller's views? Um, because I, I got this call from a friend the other day. We were talking about it. And he was like, oh, man, don't tell me Tim Keller has gone woke. And at the time, this was a while back, I said, uh, I don't think so. You know, I just, maybe he's, maybe he's just being a little vague. So anyways, I, I took a deep, somewhat, something of a deep dive as much as you can in a couple of weeks. And I realized, oh man, he's actually been talking about this stuff for a while. And many of his views on this stuff, I think, would legitimately maybe be classified as woke. So he, I think there are some evangelicals that are sort of, becoming woke you know they're like responding to this cultural moment you might think of like maybe they were a little bit empty and so it's coming and filled a vacuum and all of a sudden they've shifted i don't get that sense from tim keller it seems like he's actually been there for a while but you guys have been following him and the gospel coalition for years so i'm going to shut up we're going to let you talk what are tim keller's views help us understand where he's coming from so I'll just give a broad sort of philosophical or ideological overview of the landscape and, and Keller's role in it. Keller is professedly a conservative Christian, both theologically and you could argue politically that he professes to be uh, on the conservative side of things. But 
for a really long time, he has been laying the groundwork, I think is probably the best way to put it, for what we are currently seeing today and what you might call woke today, (laughs) especially in terms of an idea of what justice is uh, and especially the the concept of social justice. So that's really... Keller's major contribution to wokeness is the social justice angle and especially the economic aspect of social justice that obviously has influences into other areas like racial justice and the way that that's being redefined by critical race theory and things like that. And there are a lot of overlaps and we can get into some of that because Keller has been more explicit more recently, or at least more videos and such have a, have surfaced more recently where he's more explicit on the the critical race theory side of social justice and wokeness but for a long time his emphasis was on what does justice mean in terms of economics especially what does social justice mean in terms of economics and he really laid the groundwork intellectually for seminary presidents seminary professors and you know christian academics to start building a theology, a consistent or what they think is a consistent theology of social justice. So, I mean, if you dig behind what a lot of these people are saying on a popular level, if you go back far enough, eventually most most of them are going to be citing Keller and most of them are going to be citing his book, Generous Justice. That, that, and I, I don't remember exactly when that was written, but it was roughly a decade ago. So it's, it's been quite a while. And in that book, he argues for what I would say is a, a pretty Marxist view of justice without calling it such. And the way that he argues for it is slippery, let's say. <laughs> He's a little bit of a slippery guy. He knows how to use words in a way that it's difficult to nail down exactly what he means. So you have to kind of be really discerning. But that, that's what was being introduced at least a decade ago, and he's been sort of slow-dripping it ever since then. And there's a lot of other uh, articles that he's written, uh, The Gospel and the Poor, I think, or maybe it's God and the Poor that he wrote for uh, a theological magazine. There are a number of other uh, resources, but his book, Generous Justice, is the main one. Anything you want to add to that, Cody? Lately, Keller has been concerned with making arguments that it's okay for Christians to vote for Democrats. And so he will say there are some things about the Democratic platform that more closely fit with the Bible compared to the Republicans. And then he'll look at the Republican platform and he'll say that, you know, there's things about it that are good, but there's things about that are bad. And then therefore, as a conclusion, we can't really, as Christians, supposedly, quote, bind somebody's conscience. That is, we're not allowed as Christians. This is his strong position that he takes. He binds our consciences by telling us that we are not allowed to go around telling people that according to biblical standards, it would be wrong to vote for Joe Biden. That's his strong position that he's binding our conscience about. Conscience about. And I think he's wrong about that. Uh, but you know, he's been doing that for several years. He's written an opinion piece in the New York Times in which he uh, expressed that opinion. He says things like, well, we know that God tells us to care for the poor, but it, it's not clear from the Bible how we're supposed to do it. And so there's no reason why a Christian couldn't say that we need the state to redistribute money. But that doesn't make me a Marxist because I don't ascribe to atheism. I don't ascribe to these other uh, Marxist type parts of of the ideology. But uh, what Jacob has exposed and we talk about in one of our previous videos is the needs-based theory of justice is present within uh, how he's describing the political theory that Christians should advocate. 
And so in this most recent article, he talks about the year of the Jubilee and the gleaning laws, and he talks about the overall expectations that we care for the poor. It's a moral expectation from God, a command to Christians or to his people in the old days. But he will, he will expand on that, and he'll say that you have to, therefore, call that justice. It would be robbery. It'd be robbery if you don't do it, and um, it would it would be an injustice if you don't do it. And from that follows the idea that uh, you must organize your society in such a way that it is not voluntary. And and that's what we're concerned with. Is he's going to go that direction? This latest article makes that pretty clear that that's the direction he wants to go. And and because of that, we're going to say he's more on the Marxist side. He's embraced the Marxist basic premise of the need based theory of justice. Somebody's need constitutes a claim on somebody else. And uh, given that, it's no surprise that he embraces a lot of the democratic platform and he's willing to overlook the democratic position on abortion because from his perspective, these other issues, uh, this, this need-based theory of justice takes precedence. And so last time we talked in, in our previous episode, you guys laid out kind of, you said broadly speaking, most of the theories of justice can be come under the umbrella of two two theories of justice, right? The need-based and what you called the, I can't remember if you called it the merit-based or other ways yeah. of cashing that out. Can you maybe just briefly again uh, tell our listeners what those two are? Sure. And to preface it, I want to elaborate a little bit on what I meant earlier when I said that Keller can be a little bit slippery because that, that's one of the, the features of his writing, uh, especially in this latest article even, that makes it difficult for us who oppose his view to really do so in a in a clear way because people will say oh but he also said this and so the the way that he approaches this whole conversation is he he doesn't do actual definitions like he, he doesn't actually give a, a a full and concise definition of justice he does definition by loose and random description so he'll grab lots of random verses that happen to mention something related to justice. And he sort of, he, it's, not even, it's not even a definition. It's just there's this loose aggregate of descriptions. And he says, all of this is justice, but without ever nailing down exactly what he means. And so it makes it so that he can say, well, no, I, I don't mean that if you say, you know, he means Marxism. Uh, but then you also can't say, well, he does mean X, Y, Z. The other thing that makes it difficult is he does definition by negation. He says the biblical view of justice is whatever doesn't match up with the popular secular views of justice. So he'll say, you know, uh, radical Marxist communist justice is unbiblical. And he'll say radical individual secular justice is unbiblical and radical progressive American justice is unbiblical. And you're left wondering, okay, well, what is biblical justice? And, and when he gets into that, then he just does the random descriptions without giving a definition. So that, that's, that's what I mean when I say it's a little slippery. It's hard to really nail him down. But if you really look at when he makes strong affirmative statements about what justice is when you get to, down to the essentials and he makes arguments for them. The, the clearest one he makes is that justice is based on needs 
rather than based on merit. And this is where we're getting to answering your question. So he, he says that if you don't freely and generously give to the poor according to your ability, then you are robbing from the poor. You are committing an injustice against the poor, which means that justice is determined by needs rather than by merit. And the reason I say that is because justice means getting what you're due. Like that, that's the classical definition. Justice is you receive what you're due or you give what you're due. And the question that a theory of justice has to answer is, how do you determine what you're due? How do you determine what you owe to other people? You can either base it on needs, which is what Keller's advocating. And the, and the reason we call this the Marxist view is because the, the Marxist slogan was from each according to their ability to each according to their need. That's the Marxist view of justice. And that's very similar to what Keller is arguing for. It's to the degree that you are able, that you've got abundance, and to the degree that somebody else is in need, you are committing an injustice if you don't give freely to that person. You're robbing from them even. And, and that implies that they have a rightful claim to your belongings if they need it. Now, Keller's going to come in and say, but the state shouldn't get involved. We're not saying that the state should redistribute what you don't need to those who do need it. But the question is why, right? If it's robbery, isn't the state supposed to punish robbery? And isn't the state supposed to right the wrong of robbery? And he uses that terminology. He uses the terminology of robbery. So it's really difficult to see why or how he can maintain saying, no, no, this isn't real Marxism because I don't want the state involved. Jacob, one point to clarify is I don't think he's ever said he is against the state getting involved. He's often said, I am not here saying that the state should get involved. There's a difference between him saying that he's not saying something versus him actually saying that he's against it. That's true. I, I don't want to say that he for sure hasn't said that, but I wouldn't be surprised. I, I can't recall a time. So maybe if one of our readers or listeners wants to point out, has Keller ever positively said that he is against the state getting involved in such robbery? Uh, that would be really good to know. I, well, he, I think he Cody's probably right. Open. He has to. I mean, if there's any consistency, he's left it open because there's, uh, he, you know, he says in the article in the New York Times, who's to say, you know, if, if we can achieve justice by the state taking more control sometimes or less control sometimes, then that will be okay. According to the Bible, we don't, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. But then if you look at this most recent article that just came out um, in this one, the way he's talking about the, the gleaning laws and the, uh, the year of Jubilee, he does make it clear that he sees a place for the government in redistribution. Uh, he, he sees this as a collective thing that you should not have the ability to opt out of. Mm. Well, and I, I know last episode, again, if go back to this, if you haven't heard it yet, but you talked, to, you gave an argument for why we should not adopt the need-based theory and how it turns God into a moral monster. So we won't revisit that here. Um, but do you feel like maybe we could get into a little bit of his case for that theory of justice? Does he make that case well as do the gleaning laws and the year of Jubilee, do they suggest a need-based theory of justice that we should adopt as Christians? Let me find the, the quotes that I pulled as I was reading that, because that's, that's going to be important. Sure. Well, while Cody's looking that up, there's a fundamental scheme that Keller uses or a sleight of hand that he uses to make most of these arguments. And that is an equivocation 
between what we owe to God and what we owe to other people, right? Because justice is giving what you owe, giving what's due. And it's true that we owe everything to God, right? God ultimately owns everything. And anything that we own, you know, all of my wealth or my possessions, they are ultimately God's. God has ultimate first claim on them, right? So it, in, in relation to God, I owe everything to him as justice. But that doesn't mean that in my relationship to other people, to you or to Cody, that I owe everything to you or that I owe everything to other people who are in need. That there's a difference between what I owe to others and what I owe to God. And God, as the ultimate owner of my stuff, can command me to give to others. And if I don't, then I'm committing an injustice against him. But that doesn't mean I'm committing an injustice against that other person. Because the other person doesn't have a rightful claim. I don't owe it to that other person. I owe it to God to obey him in giving to the other person who doesn't deserve it or doesn't own it rightfully. So to the other person, it's a free gift. It's charity, even though the same act is justice or obedience to God. And Keller blurs the lines between those two things and equivocates between what we owe to God and what we owe to others. And that's how he's able to very loosely describe giving charitably to others as quote unquote justice. Yeah, that's helpful. Did you find anything you wanted to add to that, Cody? From a yeah, here's several sections uh, when it, within his newest article. So I'll start here. He's talking about the gleaning laws and the Sabbath year, the year of the Jubilee. He says, and yet many laws show us that these property rights are not absolute. The Sabbath year law required that every seventh year all debts were canceled, Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 10. And even more radical law was the law of the Jubilee year. Every 50 years, the land went back to its original allotments. Leviticus 25, 8 through 55. On average, each person or family would have a once-in-a-lifetime chance to start over, no matter how deeply into debt they had fallen. So he uses this as a justification for showing us that property rights were not absolute in the Old Testament. That was what he was showing. And, you know, I read that and I think, okay, so you're showing the property rights are not absolute because God has set up a certain system where this is how ownership works in this given society. Well, if God has said, this is how ownership works, this is what your rights are. And every 50 years, uh, if you had land, it goes back to the original family. That's just a legal system for determining who owns what property. And uh, the, the people of Israel were living as vassals of God himself. He was their king. And so in that, in that situation, God owned everything. He gave it to them temporarily and said, this is how we're going to distribute it over time. But there was a system in place for determining who owned what. And people could have a reliable means of knowing that. And, and so, therefore, when you bought land from somebody else's family, you knew that you were basically renting it. That doesn't, uh, that doesn't mean what Keller is trying to argue here, that property rights were not absolute. In, within the human sphere, property rights were X, Y, and Z, as established by God's law. And then, so he goes on about the gleaning laws. He says, God says that some of the profit from your business does not belong to you, but to those with less. So he's, he's making the claim here that uh, it doesn't belong to the person. So it's not just that God has commanded that you must give it, but that it actually doesn't rightfully belong. And so if that, you know, if that field owner were to keep the corners of his gleanings, that would be theft. And 
based on the overall context of what I'm reading from Keller, I assume he's saying that it would be right for somebody to sue that person and say, give it to me. Uh, and then he, he just describes that there's also a legal system in place for if somebody tries to take too much. And uh, then you can say, no, 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 you, you only get the corners. So, all right. So, so then he summarizes this. And this is why he's so slippery, because he summarizes things and you think to yourself, that's not a conclusion that follows from anything you just said. Uh, but if you're not reading carefully. So, so he goes on, he summarizes, this giving was neither optional charity nor state redistribution. It was God commanding private obedience is, is what I think. And I think that's the way most people have always read it because there's no punishment described in the law where if somebody refused to let people onto their field, there's no like, if somebody refuses, therefore this is how you come and get, you know, this is how you sue them or whatever. Um, but, but his summary is simply that it was neither optional charity nor state redistribution. I think what he's getting at there is that it was required by God, which I agree, and that the state didn't come in and count it, which I, I agree with that. But he's using this as an argument for, um, for a system in which society expects everyone today, whether they're Christians or not, to, to give into a collective and to be willing to put out that collective. So then he goes on, let me, let me show you this. He quotes Blom, Blomberg, uh, Old Testament scholar. And Blomberg writes that, uh, that the Bible suggests a sharp critique, critique of statism, but also of the untrammeled individualism, which secures in individuals at the expense of the community. So we, we see here, uh, Craig Blomberg is operating on a collectivist premise and Keller is agreeing with it. And then he goes on and he talks about uh, he talks about mercy and justice, trying to equivocate uh, a couple of different words for, for justice and righteousness. Um, and, and then he goes on and he, he talks about, and I think this is where it becomes really clear what he's getting at. Let me read you a quote from him. Both socialism and libertarianism keep the obligation to share with the needy on the horizontal level. On the left, money is the state's and the, the distribution to the needy will be involuntary. On the right, money is yours alone, and any giving is voluntary and optional. The biblical teaching makes the primary dimension the vertical, the relationship to God. Your money is your own, and no one must confiscate it from you. So here he is, he's saying, no one must confiscate it from you. But does he believe that? Because in the New York Times in 2018, he said, should we shrink government and let private capital markets allocate resources, or should we expand the government and give the state more power to redistribute wealth? Or is the right path one of the many possibilities in between the Bible does not give exact answers? So here's the first of one of the many contradictions we have to point out from Keller. Uh, if, if, he if he is attempting to say in this new article what it sounds like he's attempting to say, then he's disagreeing with his previous article, which leads me to think what he is attempting to sound like he's saying in this new article is not what he's intending to say with this new article. So, I mean, let me go on. He says, your money is your own. No one must confiscate it from you. That's the, the conservative viewpoint. Yet you do have the moral obligation to both God and your neighbor to use your money unselfishly and with great generosity to love others with it according to both your ability and their needs. So he's saying all these things that every Christian would agree with, but he's leaving it quite open here because he's not, he's not going to answer the unanswered question. Are you now, you know, are you, are you going to take it back uh, about the idea that the state should come in and redistribute it? Or, or not. Like you've just, you've just talked about how in the Old Testament there was this expectation and it was, so, was society-wide. Are you implying that in the society of, that includes atheists and, and Christians and Muslims and a lot of other religions that 
that we need to organize our society along those same lines? It really sounds like you are. I mean, otherwise, why don't you just say voluntary charity? It's that easy, uh, Mr. Keller. So anyway, that's, that's one major critique. Yeah, and I think that gets to what I'm seeing that he does seems to do often. He presents these sides and says, well, none of these are biblical. And it's almost like, well, they're one's just as good as the other. Um, and neither, none of them are in line more so or less so with the biblical view. And it's kind of this vague, I don't know, it just, it, it, it kind of makes it vague enough to push it away from what seems to be the clear case. Um, is that a common, like what's going on with that approach? I mean, anytime that somebody isn't giving clear, concise definitions, anytime they appear to be contradicting themselves, when they're using many, many words, right? It's, it's understandable to have apparent contradictions with short, like, tweets, right? <laughs> because you've got to be concise, and it's easy to say something without elaborating on it, and then it appears that there's some sort of contradiction, and then you have to come in to clarify. But when you've got a 9,000-word article, and you very apparently seem to be contradicting yourself both in that article and in other things that you've said in other similarly lengthy articles and similarly lengthy books. I mean, at some point we have to say, especially as Christians who are supposed to value honesty and, and light, Hey, we need more clarity here, Mr. Keller. <laughs> like we, we, you aren't speaking as one who is both knowledgeable and honest about this topic, right? It's possible that he's honest, but not very knowledgeable. So he's just making all kinds of bumbling mistakes and contradicting himself. But that's highly unlikely given Keller's education, right? I mean, the reason that he's held in such high esteem is because he is so knowledgeable about so many things, especially on these topics. And then that makes it so that we have to ask, well, then is he possibly being dishonest? Is he or at least, is he being less than honest? Is he attempting to communicate one thing without being too clear about what he wants to communicate? And that's what it seems like. And I could be wrong. I would love to be proven wrong about that. But we have to go by the fruit that we have available to us. We can't just wishfully think, oh, well, he really means this obscure thing that it's really difficult to tell. And so we shouldn't just worry. We just shouldn't worry about it. Yeah, and, and that's one thing we talked about with Sam was even in that first point, if he, he lays out, like you said, not a definition of biblical justice, but five tenets in the previous article. And the first one was that others have a claim on my wealth, so I must give freely or voluntarily. And it seemed like there was an incoherence there, depending on what you mean by claim, others have a claim on my wealth. Um, but he gets to the end of that paragraph and he says, so the biblical model fits with neither capitalism nor socialism. Um, how, how do you respond to that claim? What's, what's going on there? First, with his conclusion, if it's neither with capitalism nor socialism, he's implying there's some third option that's better than both capitalism or socialism, but he won't tell you what that third option is. Right? He, he'll say it's not this or this, but he won't say what it is. And, and that's what's confusing and frustrating, right? But then if you go back to the beginning of that, the, the idea that the Bible says that others in need have a claim on your wealth, the, the, his reasoning there is that same equivocation I mentioned earlier between God having a claim on your wealth and others having a claim on your wealth, right? If others have a claim on your wealth just because they need it, 
then there is no such thing as private property and there is no such thing as theft, right? If someone in need takes something from me that they need, that's not theft. In fact, I was the thief because I had what they needed. It rightfully belonged to them. So the, the, the concept of theft goes out the window. The concept of private property goes out the window. And that's another example in this most recent article that Cody cited just earlier. If you go back and listen to what Cody quoted, th there's a contradiction. Keller says that uh, the, the confiscation of property is always theft. It's always theft. It's always wrong. And then in like the next breath, he says, but private property is not an absolute. Well, it's either an absolute and always theft, it's always wrong to violate it, or it's not an absolute and it's not always wrong to violate it. You can't have it both ways. But what, what does it mean to say it's always wrong to violate this principle and then turn around and say, but this principle is not an absolute? To understand what Timothy Keller's position is requires you to combine data points from what he said at different times. So uh, let me give you some context of something he said about the people who wrote the statement on social justice in the gospel that was published back in 2018. The leading theologian behind that document was John MacArthur. And this is how MacArthur explained the purpose of that. He says, for the sake of Christ and his church, the statement on social justice in the gospel says, we deny that the postmodern ideologies derived from intersectionality, radical feminism, and critical race theory are consistent with biblical teaching. Implications and applications of the gospel, such as the obligation to live justly in the world through legitimate and important, or sorry, though legitimate and important in their own right, are not definitional components of the gospel. So that's their overall statement. And then they go into piece by piece what they mean by those terms. But Keller responds to that statement and he says this about the statement and about the people that drafted it. He says, You can't just analyze words by what they say, you have to also analyze words by what they do. I do think what it's trying to do is it's trying to say, don't make this emphasis. Don't worry about the poor. Don't worry about the injustice. That's really what it's saying. This is quoted at Relevant Magazine. It was on a video, which has recently been taken down, so it's hard to find the video. But I mean, I, I, you can find the video from AD Robles. It's on his channel still. But the, what, what, he's, what he's doing there is, is he's, I mean, if he, wanted, if he wanted to, he could have agreed with MacArthur and said, you know, you're right. And in fact, if you look at the article that came out last month, where he attempted to show that he critiques critical race theory and doesn't accept it, um, you know, I mean, he, he you, you would have thought, I mean, if that's, if that's really who he is, that he'd have been the first one to say, you know what, MacArthur, you're right, that radical feminism or that critical theory, that these things are not the same thing as the gospel. And in fact, that they are a danger to the gospel, not compatible with it. If he wanted to say that, he could have, but instead, he looked at the people who said it, and he said that they don't care about the poor. Don't worry about injustice. Don't worry about the poor. So, so that strikes me as his position is actually that those people that are advocating that, that idea um, of, of that statement, that, that they're wrong somehow. So what does he think is wrong with their view? And uh, the answer would have to be either we as Christians need to go out and give more charitably, voluntarily, or we as Christians need to advocate structural changes in our laws. If he wants to say one of those things or the other, he's welcome to. Uh, but, but in, you know, in by the fact that he's not going out there specifically saying it, but he's just suggesting it, you have to think he believes it 
and he doesn't want to say it. Except that's a t- troubling position. You also have to take into account the fact that the people he's objecting to and saying they don't care about the poor, they don't care about injustice, those people are very, very pro-individual charity. And they would affirm that God commands, they, they wouldn't say it's optional. That, that's the straw man that Keller tries to paint of his opponents. That, oh, you guys believe it's optional, but God commands it. No, they all believe, and we all believe, that God does command us to voluntarily give charitably to those in need, especially in certain circumstances. Now, I would add a qualifier that it's not a, it's not a universal command that you must always give to everyone in need according to their need and according to your ability. And one very simple refutation of that is in the New Testament, if anyone will not work, let him not eat. So th- we have ex- at least one example of God commanding to us. So if we're going to take seriously, God owns our wealth. He gets to tell us what to do with it. I agree, Tim Keller. God gets to tell me what to do with my wealth. And he tells me, you better not give a dime to somebody who refuses to work. But Keller doesn't seem to allow for that application of God owning my wealth and telling me what to do with it. Right? There's another example in the New Testament where uh, the woman comes to worship Jesus and to anoint him with the costly perfume. And Judas says, wait, wait, we could have sold that and given the money to the poor. And Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with me. This woman has done a good thing. So there's another example of there are times where it's appropriate not to give your money to the poor if you've got a way of glorifying and honoring Jesus with it that is something other than giving to the poor. And you've got to be careful about what that is. You've got to make sure that you're not deceiving yourself. But there are appropriate ways to use your money that God commands you to use your money that aren't always giving to the poor. And so it's very possible to give to the poor according to their need and according to your ability in such a way that you are violating God's commands about the money that he ultimately owns and that he's ultimately the boss of. Yeah, I think that's good. And, and I think we're getting to the essence of the maneuvering there. And, and, and really, as even Cody, as you described what he wrote in that new article, it actually seems to be right in line with capitalism or free market approach from a Christian perspective where you are to give freely and not compelled by the state. So it's, it's interesting that I think it's, it's, it's almost like he made the case in the right direction, but then makes this unwarranted leap. Uh, by vagaries, <laughs> uh, muddy in the water. And so I, I would like to maybe have you guys weigh into, I know he's talks uh, often about corporate responsibility, and that's been one of the tenets of his five views of biblical justice, being held responsible for um, corporate sins. And that seems to kind of weigh in on the systemic racism conversation and how the that's approaching it. And he's almost trying to maybe give cover for the ideas of critical race theory with white privilege and divesting yourself and repenting off that. Can you guys speak into that? What, what do you think of his case for corporate responsibility based on passages like, I think it was Daniel nine and first Samuel where Israel's held uh, individuals in Israel held responsible for stuff they didn't necessarily do as individuals. And he's also references a pagan nation that was held responsible for stuff they didn't do in that particular generation, but stuff that was done previously. And then the last one was like, I think Aiken's sin and his family thoughts on that. There's no reason why uh, 
you know, you know, why we would disagree with what God did in the Bible when he dealt with people as a, as a group. He made a covenant with people as a group, and that's within his rights to do. Nobody has a right against God. Um, but what Keller Keller's position is expressed in a video uh, that I just watched today where he says, if you have white skin, it's worth a million dollars over a lifetime. You have to say, I don't deserve this. I'm the product of and standing on the shoulders of other people who got that through injustice. The Bible says you're involved in injustice. And even if you didn't actually do it, um, you know, the Bible didn't say that Cody Leibold or Jacob Rutten was involved in, in an injustice. Um, it's clear from the context that Aiken involved his family in the injustice. I mean, it, it's clear that when the, you know, the, the entire army of Israel went and uh, didn't follow God's commands when they were, uh, when they were in a battle against another people and they didn't kill all the animals, like God said, they were all involved in some way and it affected their families and God shows that it would affect their families. There's, I mean, I mean tr it's true. God deals with people as collectives and that you do suffer consequences uh, similar to the fact that, um, you know, we all, we all have our free will, but the fact that somebody comes into my house and decides to shoot my family, like, you know, that I would, I would suffer from their choices because God has allowed there to be a world where, uh, where we affect each other. That is not an argument for what Keller wants it to be an argument for, because he wants it to be an argument for, since God sometimes deals with people as collectives, therefore we, I have the, uh, the responsibility given to me from God that I must deal with you as a collective and in this way. And that is, I'm going to determine that you guys are more privileged, that you're less privileged, that we're all going to pay a whole bunch of money into a, a collective pot, and I'm going to pay it out the way I see fit. It, it's a real reach to get that from the Bible, Mr. Keller. Uh, I'll preface my comments with the fact that I haven't gotten to that point in his new article. <laughs> so I, I, I kind of scrolled through and I saw he's got a huge section on that topic. I haven't got there yet. So maybe he's got more nuanced arguments that I'm going to address here. But I, I would say one helpful way of viewing that sort of corporate judgment in the Bible is that there are very legitimate ways in which we are individually culpable, often implicitly, for things that are going on in our generation, especially to the extent that we aren't objecting, to the extent that we have the opportunity to do anything to stop an injustice, and we don't. Or, even more so, to the extent that we participate in advancing the injustice, we are culpable. And it's appropriate that God holds us morally culpable. And we should hold each other morally culpable, not legally culpable, because that would be nearly impossible to prove in a court of law, right? But morally, so, you know, go back to the time of Jim Crow, right? Um, I would say if, if I, as a white person, lived under the laws that were Jim Crow, and I didn't object to them, then I very likely was guilty to a small extent, however small it might have been, of being complicit with that injustice. And it was, and that's another thing, we aren't shy about using the language of systemic injustice or even systemic racism. We would just say that that's got an actual objective definition. 
where a system is committing an injustice or where a system is enacting racism. And Jim Crow laws were the government, a system, enacting actual racism, actual racial prejudice. Or slavery is a, is a much bigger example, right? So, so take either one of those examples. If you lived in that time under that system and you participated in it without objecting to it, then there is some extent to which you are culpable morally for some of the evils that went on in that system. And you, it can get really complex in the way you parse that out, but I'm, I'm very comfortable, and I, I'm sure Cody is too, in affirming that there is that sense of sort of corporate culpability when it comes to your living in a society, you're living under a system and not objecting to the injustices, especially the, the really, really gross injustices. A contemporary comparison would be abortion. I think there's a very real sense in which we will be judged to the extent that we don't do what we can to fight the gross injustice of abortion today. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm thinking of even the, was it the Old Testament passage, the the one tribe was a Korah that was judged and God basically said, come out from among them, whoever doesn't want to be. And, and in a sense, I think that standing up against these injustices is a, our way of coming out from among them. And, and, you know, I think this point would be relevant to even conservative thinking who might be saying, man, actually Tim Keller might be committing himself by giving cover to voting for pro-abortion candidates to this kind of collective injustice. And, and that's why we have to be careful as influencers and teachers in the Christian faith to, you know, not fall into that exact example and be even more maybe culpable than someone who doesn't have that kind of platform. Um, do you guys, so, so one of the aspects that stood out to me in that previous article is when he was talking about unfair wages and the scriptures he were, was using for that though, didn't, when, when we hear unfair wages in the modern context, I think we, we tend to think of like disparities between men and women, for instance, or certain races. But he used that language, unfair wages, and linked some scriptures. We read through them last episode, episode with Sam. But the scriptures almost, I think in three out of four cases, had to do with not paying that day what they said they would pay them. It had nothing to do with like the amount of the wages or comparing them to other people. And so I thought, man, that either seemed like a, I don't know, the kind of basic mistake that you wouldn't expect someone like Keller to make. And I thought, you know, if he's coming out with a more complicated article in the future, I wonder if the complications would just be better ways of hiding those kinds of errors. So far reading into this new article, what are you guys seeing? Or is there nuance that's better, like bringing better clarity to some of his previous statements? Or is it new ways of maybe dancing around some of the same arguments? I would say that the um, the worst part about the article is that it combines some sentences that are completely true and that everybody would affirm. And they think, you know what, that's really well said with a lot of sentences that just change the direction of the thought or that imply something that's, that's just not biblical. So, I mean, I, I don't think that the article makes up for, uh, for some of the things that he said that are false in the past. I mean, even as recently as two weeks ago, he was on Twitter uh, showing you a preview of the, one of the footnotes of this article. And so, I mean, read the footnotes because he snuck some things into there. So let me read you a footnote to this article. He, he says, Christians and the freedom of conscience in politics. The Bible binds my conscience to care for the poor, but it does not tell me the best practical way to do it. 
Any particular strategy, high taxes and government services versus low taxes and private charity may be good and wise. So you can see he has no principle. Uh, he just he just thinks, well, whatever works, whatever whatever may help the poor by whatever standard, that could be good and wise. And we know helping people is biblical. And that seems to be the extent of his argument. Um, but he's putting, he's building it in so that you cannot say that he's against growing statism in this. And then, you know, he goes on and he says, you know, this may be inferred from what the Bible teaches about other topics. They're not directly commanded. So we can't insist that all Christians as a matter of conscience follow one or the other. The Bible binds my conscience to love the immigrant but it doesn't tell me how many legal immigrants to admit to the U.S. every year. It does not exactly prescribe immigration policy. The current political parties offer a potpourri of different positions on these and many other topics, most of which, as just noted, the Bible does not speak to directly. This means that when it comes to taking political positions, voting, determining alliances, and political involvement, the Christian has liberty of conscience. So because the Bible doesn't prescribe immigration, therefore the Christian has liberty of conscience on how best to eliminate the, the problem of abortion in our society? Like, is, is that really what he's intending to imply? Because it is what his words mean. Um, and he goes on, Christians cannot say to other Christians, no Christian can vote for fill in the blank, or every Christian must vote for, unless you find a biblical command to that effect. And then he goes on because people complained about what he had said there. And so on Twitter, he goes on, he says, some folks are missing the point of this thread. The Bible tells me abortion is a sin and it's a great evil but it doesn't tell me the best way to decrease or end abortion in this country, nor which policies are the most effective. So taken on its face, I mean, sure, you're right. The Bible doesn't say what, which policy is the most effective for ending abortion as a, as a political strategy in 2020. But it, it does say uh, that it is a life and that it would be a crime to end it and that uh, there should be a penalty for that. And I believe that the Bible makes it clear. You have to, Jacob, am I correct on this, that um, it would be considered a murder? in the Bible? Uh, I don't see why it wouldn't be. In the Old Testament law? Yeah, I, I, I have no idea why it wouldn't be. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. So, and what, one of the really annoying things with that particular framing by Keller is that he, and he's done this before in that chart on his last article, uh, he's making justice about outcomes rather than about a principled procedure, right? So, it, justice is about what happens with the poor versus the rich or what happens with freedom versus constraints or whatever. And then in this case, justice is about the best outcome for abortion, meaning whatever results in the least amount of abortions, that's the just option that we should take. And it's like, no, even if making abortion illegal in every single state would result in more abortions, that's still the right thing to do. That's still the just thing to do is to make it illegal and to punish it. The, the result doesn't determine the principle. The result doesn't determine the justice, right? It, it, even So go back to another example where I'm sure Keller would hopefully agree with us, even if outlawing slavery would have resulted in more slavery, it was the right thing to do to outlaw slavery. Right? We're, we're not pragmatists, but that's what Keller is implicitly teaching in the way that he's framing these issues, is that justice should be a pragmatic issue where you figure out what's going to achieve the quote-unquote best results, and that's what defines justice. So good. Yeah, that's, 
That's really interesting. So I know you guys last time talked a little bit about the nature of government. Do you think that he has a view on what government is to do? If he did, I, I would challenge anyone to figure it out. <laughs> His view seems to be similar to the uh, the view of the liberal Catholics over the last 150 years. You know, they write these encyclicals that say that the advancement of the nations requires that uh, the the state be involved in making sure that everybody is guaranteed this and this and this. And so, just as Jacob pointed out, it's an, it's an outcome-based criteria. And so... Keller would say, you know, if somebody is sick, then you, I, I, I'm, I'm just guessing here because I cannot quote him, but he, my guess is he would say justice requires if somebody's sick, they receive a safety net of some kind. You know, the state will pay for their hospitalization, that kind of thing. Um, it, justice would require that there would be no people without houses, though, no people without education. Those are the kinds of things that uh, the, the, the tradition that he's coming from has advocated for a very long time. And it sounds to me like he's just coming just shy of saying all that, because if you were to say that it would ruin his credibility among the people that he is slowly converting to his way of thinking. Hmm. You know, I've heard recently that he was part of the, um, and campaign or something like that kind of behind the scenes. Do you guys know anything about that? Yeah, he was involved. I think he was on their board or something like that, but then he left. I think he was exposed real quick for being on it. And I think I don't know exactly why he left, but it was short. Which if, if you're listening, you're not familiar with it. I just looked at that, looked into it a bit today. And apparently it's an organization uh, that kind of attempts to infiltrate the evangelical church and move it leftward politically. Um, uh, so yeah, you know, this kind of brings us to maybe the last segment I wanted to talk to today. And that's, you know, we've seen kind of what Tim Keller's ideas are. And I, I guess at bottom, it's his view of justice. And like shortly over from that, it's his view of collectivism and all that's kind of whittling upward through his thinking and then out to a popular level. We talked about a little bit like why those thoughts don't really come from the scriptures he's using and the, the case he's making is not very strong. But why, why is this dangerous in this cultural moment we're in? Well, all, all comments, and this will loop back to our last interview, but I, I think this is the biggest danger that Christians need to be aware of. This, this need-based theory of justice destroys the gospel, it, and it, it will teach Christians to hate the gospel and to hate the God of the gospel, because the need-based theory says that justice is getting what you need from those who are able to give it to you. And when we think about our relationship to God, we are needy sinners who need salvation from him, and he is able to give it to us. And so justice would demand that he give it to us. And yet the gospel says that justice demands that he give us hell. Justice demands that he punish our sin for eternity. That's what the gospel says. And that he freely gives us salvation as an act of grace, as a free gift, not as justice. In fact, the Bible says that's why it must be by faith, so that it is a receiving of a gift rather than an earning through justice. The wages of sin, the the merit of sin is death, but the free gift, the grace of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the gospel is the exact opposite of this needs-based theory of justice. The gospel says, no, 
justice is you meriting through your actions, you, you getting what you deserve. And what you deserve through your sin is eternal death, is eternal punishment from God. And the only way that you can hope for getting what you need from God is if you confess that you don't deserve it as justice, is if you throw yourself on his mercy and trust in Christ as your savior so that he gives it to you as a gift rather than as justice, rather than as your due. But see, this view of the needs-based theory of justice says that it's evil to withhold what you have that other people need. But that's what God does to sinners who don't throw themselves on Christ. God withholds what he has and what we need, and he ends up sending people to hell who aren't saved, which makes him a moral monster. He is the ultimate greedy, unjust, capitalistic miser, according to this view. He, he is the biggest evil in the universe, according to this view of justice. The greatest injustice in the universe is God not giving the sinner what they need. It's divine privilege. Talk about white privilege. He's got divine privilege. Right? So that, that's, that's what I want to say to Christians that is the biggest danger is that this undermines the gospel and the, the extent to which you buy into it is the extent to which you are going to gradually learn to hate the God of the Bible and you're going to gradually learn to distort and hate the gospel. There's other really important uh, effects in society. I'll let Cody speak to those. Sure. The church is to be the salt and the light in the world. And, you know, the Bible tells us that if we lose our saltiness, that we're good for nothing just to be trampled out and walked on. And we will see, and we, we are seeing, Christians in our society are not being a transformative influence. Evangelism and church planting and baptisms, they're not on the increase right now. And it's because I don't, I don't think that God is going to bless the representatives of his message if they get his message wrong. And if we get the message wrong about justice, as, as Jacob was describing, uh, you know, Christians are going to smell like the world. Timothy Keller smells like the world. He's not a, prophet, a prophetic voice. Uh, he's, he's attempting to appease the same ideologies that currently are destroying the world. And he's neutering Christian men because they could have been the ones that would fight back and, and protect families, protect our country, protect people all around the world. I mean, I mean you, you care about people all around the world. I care about people all around the world. And the United States is a very good thing for people all around the world if it continues to exist. And I would say that the church, if it does its job, it ought to be the kind of thing that makes a, a country like the United States possible. But we're losing the ability to do that. And, um, and so that's, that's what's at stake. I mean, your well-being. The Bible talks about how weak would a person have to be if they would just, uh, you know, stand by while evil men triumph. You know, how, how weak you'd have to be. And, and that's what the church has become. There are no men who are standing up against the riots that are burning down our cities who were trained by Timothy Keller. But there are men who are starting the fires who were trained by the same ideas that Timothy Keller is teaching. So that's a clear picture of the cause and effect in the long run and, and in the broad effects on society. So, I mean, it's, it's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death for the individual person's soul. 
and also for our church and, and the global church as well as for our country. Wow. <laughs> so good. Yeah. That's, you know, that kind of hits you. And, and I think, you know, I heard someone say recently, I think by the public stances that he's taken right now, it's, it's soothing people's consciences to, to vote in ways that are detrimental for the common good and for the gospel. Um, and I think, uh, how would you guys, is, I've been trying to think of a name for kind of one of the views that I guess he expressed in the New York Times article in 2018, which was kind of like, there's no neat fit for Christianity and who to vote for. So it's kind of like go with your conscience. I don't know if it's um, ambidextrous voting or w- third what, way. Yeah, a third way. That's a, that's a good way to put it. So sometimes, yeah, speak, speak to that because I think, you know, there, I don't know if you guys would agree with this, but it seems like there are times when there is a third way and that's the Christian way and the best time. But, the, but is this one of those cases? And some people have likened it to Germany in the 30s and trying to give cover to the Nazi party because there was no neat fit. What are you, anything swirling in the, any of those areas that you guys would speak into? Well, first, I would say the way I would describe it is moral relativism, right? So l- let's let's distinguish between a th- an actual third way and moral relativism, which just says eh, anything goes, right? Well, that is not Christian. That's not an option. If there is a third way, you should be able to positively state what it is rather than just saying it's not this and it's not that sort of vaguely and then imply you can do one or the other that's not a third way that's moral relativism so if there really is a legitimate third way you should be able to state it positively and distinguish it clearly from the other two ways right and that's not what we see keller doing so and and that is a possibility you know potentially i i don't know if there's a third way today besides maybe just not voting at all but the other problem is that there's there's a really gross moral equivalency that's going on when we talk about the, you know, either voting Democrat or voting Republican, if, if those are the two options we're talking about, there's, there's the idea, there's sort of two layers of grossness here. The first layer of grossness is, well, Republicans are pro-life, but Democrats are pro-life for the rest of life. And that's gross because to compare the slaughter of unborn babies to what welfare is just a really, really gross comparison. But then let's back up from that. Let's just say, okay, grant that, that Republicans are pro-life, but then Democrats have other issues. What are the other issues that Democrats are quote unquote pro-life on? Welfare is not pro-life. It's pro-theft, pro slavery in very significant ways. It's pro-enablement of poverty-ridden practices. It, it's, it's bad. It's bad for society. It's bad for the people that you're stealing the money from. It's bad for the people that you're giving money to and encouraging them not to work and not to be productive. It's unbiblical. If anyone will not work, let them not eat. So the, And then if you take the racial issues, Democrats want to lie about what racism is. That they they want to take what actually is racism, racial prejudice, and say that's anti-racism. And they want to say if you're opposed to racial prejudice, then you're a racist. 
They want to call what's evil good and what's good evil. They want to call racism anti-racism, call anti-racism racism. So on, on that issue, they're evil and anti-life. On economic issues, they're evil and anti-life. Name an issue where Democrats are distinctively different from Republicans that's actually pro-life rather than anti-life. I don't think you can. So even if you want to grant the really gross equivocation between slaughtering unborn babies and other issues, there are no other issues that you can say Democrats are pro-life on. They are pro-death and anti-life from the womb to the tomb. From killing babies in the womb to enslaving people throughout the life to cutting people off at their death and, and doing death taxes and gross things like that. Like From the womb to the tomb, Democrats are anti-life in every sense imaginable. So it's just, you can't make the moral equivocation. You just can't. That's well put. Anything, Cody, you'd add to that? It does not mean that you have to vote for Republicans. And the case that Jacob and I would make on that question is, it's, it's one thing to say you absolutely cannot, as a Christian, be obedient to your Lord and support the Democrats. It's another thing, it would, it would be a whole different thing to go around saying you must vote for this or that candidate. We're not going to do that. Um, because there are reasons that somebody might have, uh, biblical reasons to be concerned about things that the Republicans do. Um, I'm planning to vote for Trump this time. I did not vote for him in 2016 because I thought, okay, he said some things that I agree with, but I, you know, I, I don't trust him. Uh, but this time around, I, I do plan to vote for him. Uh, and I'm glad, you know, in, lately in a couple of Timothy Keller's tweets, He's talked about how you can't bind other people's consciences. So I'm going to use that whenever the leftists try to complain about the fact that I'm voting for Trump. And they say, well, you know, you're binding my conscience here. <laughs> but it's... Keller gave know, me permission. Yeah, Keller, get, I've got the dispensation from your high priest. But the, it's, I mean, I think there's a very strong, compelling case as a Christian that you should consider voting that for Republicans. I think the Republican Party should be a lot better than it is. It should be a lot closer to the founding fathers' ideals, which is more economic liberty. And, but, and you know, we have, we have strong positions on those things. But it's it, uh, in the face of a great army of evil, the Republican Party is, is not the army that I would choose to fight back. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it is attempting to fight back. No, that's, that's good. Um, you know, we'll, we'll be voting for Kanye. I'm just kidding. Uh, but, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, I'm thinking, I, I've been kicking around this thought experiment. I was trying to actual, actually make an equivalency because I think in this case, honestly, it should be so clear that if you had weights, it would be like this. You know, if you, if you can only hear us, I have one hand really high and one hand really <laughs> low um, because there just aren't, there aren't any I can't think of any compelling reasons from a biblical perspective to vote for the democratic policy platform. But, you know, what if you did have the case of one party was uh, pro-life and then the other party, but the, but the pro-life party was fully um, wanted to put in socialism and the other party was pro, you know, fundamental freedoms, but they were pro-choice. I think in that case, like, yeah. it would be tougher, you know what I'm saying? There, there, there are hypotheticals where you would have that kind of moral equivalency. But how you could possibly say that that's now is, is what's mind-blowing to me. Mm -hmm. what, what do you guys think about that? That is a good thought experiment. And the way I would think about it is I am not committed 
forever to always vote for the lesser of two evils. Yeah. I, I'm not promising you that I'm going to always vote for that one that's just slightly less bad. There may come a time where both of the major candidates are so bad that I would not mm. want to support either one of them. And if one of them was Joseph Stalin and, <laughs> and the other was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I wouldn't vote for either one. Um, that's, you're right, though, that that would be a rare case that that would happen. Um, and, and of course, everybody's got to know, you know, it, it's, it's a matter of individual judgment to be able to discern based on like your collecting of information and news and what people have said and what they've said they're going to do to determine whether somebody really is a Joseph Stalin. That's, that's the, where the judgment comes in. But yeah, yeah. So, so, so I actually, I think that there is such a thing as saying, I won't vote for any one of you guys. And, and, and that's a fair thing. Uh, and, and so that's probably, you know, some, there are Christians today that are not going to vote for Donald Trump for that reasoning. And I'm, you know, I'm going to say, okay, I might disagree with you, but I don't see the Bible showing me that you are wrong very clearly here. Yeah. Yeah. Cause if you watch, if you watch CNN or any of those, you will think he is Joseph Stalin. <laughs> but, um, and so, you know, maybe last question here for me, unless you have any, babe, but, um, and I know you responded to another one of his tweets the other day on Facebook that I saw. And he was, it seemed to me he was doing a similar thing. Like there are no superior morally um, human beings. So don't look down on others, this kind of deal. Is this a, like, what is this connected to in Keller's thinking that you guys have seen? It seems to be like this conflation of like, if there's not an all or nothing, or, or, or I guess it's the idea that it's always all or nothing. There's not degrees in things. Is that a, like a common, or is he just using that, utilizing that in a certain political direction at times? He's super selective about which rhetorical point he's going to highlight at which time. That's for sure. Um, you know, so, so when, like I saw him just today say something about how you're not supposed to misrepresent other people's arguments. And so my reaction to that was, well, when are you going to apologize for what you said about the people that drafted the statement on social justice and the gospel? Uh, you, you ascribed motive to them. Um, and then, you know, in, in what's going on right now, I, I mean, the world is, is literally on fire in a lot of places. And I think, so it makes perfect sense to go out there and say, Hey, we all need to be calm. We need to think, we need to be careful about demonizing the other side. And uh, I, I think that, it's interesting because you could, you know, you could use that as an argument to silence people who are demonizing your side. Mm. We've established which side is Keller's side. And so in the event that he perceives that the, uh, the public relations battle is going against him, let's retreat a step and let's say, Oh, we need to be watching our tone. We need to be more generous to the other side or, you know, they'll write articles at the Gospel Coalition saying, we should just not be on social media. It's just not good for us anymore, which, you know, I accept as a, a strong sign that we've made an impact. We've taken some ground there. Hmm. Um, I mean, so then T Keller on uh, the 19th, he said, the demonization and dehumanization of the other side must stop. When professing Christians do, uh, do it, it is triply wrong. So dehumanization, I mean... Did he ever read what Jesus said about go tell that fox or don't throw your pearls before pigs? And um, of course, he's, he's going against Luther, who says a lot harsher <laughs> things than that. And, and so, yeah, that's, you know, the, the retreating to tone is a typical move when you're losing the battle on the issues. I think mm -hmm. in general, when we're at a time of moral crisis in society, 
and then also at a time of what seems to be mass apostasy in the church, we need moral clarity mm. from our leaders, especially our evangelical leaders, rather than riddles and vagaries and conversations about tone. That, that, that's, this is not the time to come together and sing Kumbaya mindlessly as if nothing's wrong. We don't need people crying peace, peace, where there is no peace. We need people to, to say, this is right and this is wrong, and thus saith the Lord, and here are my reasons, and I'm going to be as clear and objective as possible about this, but this is where we need to go. And if you disagree, fine, but you should also be clear and objective and make your case and let people decide. The, the constant barrage of vagaries and moral confusion is going to only perpetuate the massive chaos that we have in society and in the church. Yeah. Give um, some advice or words of encouragement to people who are truly trying to stay in that moral purity as in, in a, a day and age where people are just such followers of people they like, people who have a great name in ministry, so to speak, Big Eva, whatever. And um, how have you two personally stayed sound and true to the gospel? Give some advice on that. So for, for me, sorry, Cody, I'll, I'll, I'll continue talking just to keep the continuity. Um, I, my fundamental conviction since I became a Christian has been I want to believe what's true and follow the truth no matter where it leads. Even if that means Christianity is not true. Like if I come to find out that it's not true because there's no virtue in worshiping a fairy tale. There's no, wor there's no virtue in living a fairy tale. And so I think that that's something that a lot of Christians probably need to, to get on their knees and struggle with before God is God, help me to be a person committed to the truth above all else, especially above the opinions of men and above my fear of men. Because I, I think that that too often is what motivates us is what other people think or what other people might think rather than I just want to do and know and love the truth no matter where it leads. And, and so, you, I mean, you really have to, let everything and everyone else fade away and bring yourself alone, naked, so to speak, spiritually naked before the throne of God and realize that this, this is what's ultimate. My relationship to God and my commitment to what is true and just and holy and righteous, that is what's ultimate. That's what matters. And nothing else matters unless it's being folded into that and aimed at that purpose. And I, I mean, it's difficult and uh, that, that's, that's what our devotions every morning should be aimed at. That's what our prayers should be aimed at. That's what our Bible study should be aimed at. But I, th that's what I would encourage people fight for that mindset. With that foundational commitment to the sanctity of truth, then you go to the scripture and you realize you have concluded that this is God's word to his people and that there is an enormous trove of riches in this one book, the one book that he wanted us to go to for his words. So 
the the uh, problems that the church is facing today they largely come from the fact that people are biblically illiterate even people that have phds even people that have nationwide platforms like timothy keller clearly demonstrate that they do not understand what god is telling us about himself and a teenager who has just read through the Bible in one year ought to be able to read what Timothy Keller is saying and come up with some problems with what Timothy Keller is saying if he weighs it against the Bible. Things as simple as thou shalt not steal or um, uh, God's concept of justice in the Old Testament and and the picture of, of how God wants people to seek him. So, the character of God shines through every page of scripture. And one of the, the reasons why the pe- people are turning to other experts is because they didn't realize that they could go to the scripture for themselves and see and learn about God's character, uh, learn about, you know, God values truth. God values what is good as against the evil and what's just as against the unjust, what's right against the wrong and, and to realize God's passion for those things. And you, and you see that in scripture and then you will have more passion for those things as well. Uh, And you'll have more passion for God. Uh, I think that if, you know, if you're feeling crushed or if you're, if you're feeling deflated, that time in scripture, reading scripture and praying through scripture is is going to give you what you're missing and it's there and and god is ready to give it to you wow well thank you guys man for taking the time it's been really valuable for us and our listeners how can they i think we shared this last time but remind anybody who's listening today how they can keep in touch with you guys the website that we write at is christianintellectual.com we have podcast video and articles yeah, man, they're really good. I highly advise you go there. And I think y'all, they can support you on Patreon, right? Mm-hmm. And George Soros only gets like 10% of that. So <laughs> I think we're good on that. So um, thank you guys so much for uh, coming in today. And uh, yeah, well, hopefully we'll see you again soon. Maybe when you get done with the article, we'll uh, revisit this uh, down the road. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you for having us. So good. Don't forget you can watch these episodes in our God and Government series and our open forum on race and culture. All those episodes are on our YouTube channel. You can subscribe there at youtube.com slash freemindpodcast. Don't forget you can follow us on social media at freemindfm on Instagram and Twitter, freemindpodcastfm on Facebook. And if you could take a moment and give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts, we'd greatly appreciate that. And don't forget, you can access all of our bonus episodes from the past and get future bonus episodes if you support the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash freemindfm, and a donation of any amount per month gets you access to that entire back catalog and future bonus episodes as well. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time.